adventure is utterly pointless. There is no point to it. Um, but for those of us that love it, live and breathe it, then yeah, it's important to make people aware of that. It's about separating personal achievement against the context of the history of adventure. And that sounds quite grand, but let's take, for example, every year in Antarctica, a number of people ski the same few routes to the South Pole. And that's a wonderful personal achievement. It takes a lot of time to raise the money, dedication to training. However, you could argue on the other side of things, within the context of the history of polar exploration, that journey might well be a footnote. You might be the 40th person from your country. In the last 10 years, 50 people have done the same thing. And you've gone from perhaps being a beginner 24 months before that suddenly going to ski to the South Pole and breaking some kind of record that has been qualified with lots of additional qualifying terms to make it sound um, unique or original. It's a decision of what do we want to celebrate and highlight and remember and chronicle. Tackling objectives that are bold, remote, difficult, that are truly original and unique. For example, the first person to climb Neuro to the North Wall first person to even make the ascent of that mountain, rather than um, trying to create an element for a world record or a first that isn't so unique or novel for, and just for the sake of it, possibly to fundraise and, and so on, and, and, or to kickstart an, an adventure career. And there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. It's just for me, you can't compare the two. Um, and if the, the responses from, from the individual adventurers or protagonists of course they may not like it they may be critical mm. of your articles and at first that can be a little hard to take if you're not so used to that it takes some um, some adjustment welcome to out of adventuring the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys they not only take us to their hardships and highlights but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective and today with me is Ash Rutten, a British adventure and expedition journalist whose articles have been published in major newspapers and magazines such as the Red Bull magazine and he's a very regular contributor and journalist on the Explorers web. While he started out covering more historic expedition, his focus now are in particular recent polar expeditions. And as he puts it, he wants to give credit where credit is due. Because in his opinion, there's just a lot of noise about polar expeditions, and some of them absolutely deserve more attention than others. There's a lot of record grabbing going on, and he's a voice that is appreciated by a large polar expedition community who are not about hunting new world records just for the sake of having a record. He thinks that the attention should be put to expeditions that truly want to find new ways to do things and maybe have scientific purposes behind it. He had the pleasure of interviewing many explorers and holds close friendships with them. However, this network that he now has, it didn't come from nowhere, but it came from years of dedicating his time to reporting about true expeditions. Yeah, well, I think first, Torben, it's um, great to be chatting to you. You've had some really interesting guests on the show. Um, and I'll try and be as interesting as, as some of those that I'm following. So I'm not a, a journalist or a, a writer by background, but I write quite a bit within my day job in the university as, a, as an academic, as a, 
public health scientist. So I've trained in the past 15 years or so to write, but in the scientific style of writing. Alongside that, over the last 20, 25 years, I've been interested in the outdoors. And perhaps like some of your listeners, I started in the scout movement in the mid 1990s, learning how to sleep outdoors, how to camp, how to cook, navigate and hike. And 21 years ago, I went to Switzerland to an international scout center in Candesteg. And we were exposed to, you know, mountains far bigger than you would have in the UK. And we got the hike on glaciers, stay overnight in an alpine hut, um, climb a 3000 meter peak with a, with a, with a guide and really set me on the path of being much more interested in the outdoors. And I started mm. reading about, uh, some of the classic post-war British mountaineers, people like Chris Bonington and Doug Scott, who, you know, very well known, that got me into the adventure literature side of things. And that bubbled away for the best part of 10 or 15 years as I um, did some of my own kind of low-level hiking and um, so on when I could around my day job. And to cut a long story short, I went on a, a group trip to the north of Norway, a sort of mini polar-style expedition eight years ago. And I enjoyed just telling stories about that to friends and family, a little bit of blogging, taking photos. And that sowed the seed for me thinking, well, can I transfer the... I guess, skill to mm. some extent that I have in my day job of writing to writing about adventures and, and not mine, because I wasn't really doing much, but, but other people's. And in late 2017, I pitched my first article to a, a UK climbing and hiking website and went from there really over the last six, six and a half years. The first article, what was it about? Well, there were a couple around the same time. And I think that. The main one that sticks out was, so my dad's in his late seventies now, then he was sort of mid, mid late sixties and was someone who'd hiked and trekked throughout his life. And we were talking on the phone one day about, wouldn't it be nice if we could go to Scotland and do this one last walk together, you know, perhaps before it gets beyond his physical capabilities. And so I had this mm -hmm. idea of one last mountain, what would be your one last mountain if you could. Uh, if you were forced to pick, whether that's mm. through aging, illness, whatever reason. So I went and interviewed a range of different outdoors people, some kind of amateur climbers, others who have done all 14, 8,000ers, others who write about the outdoors and do podcasting and, and things like that and collated all of their last mountains into an article. And so I suppose that was the first meaningful outdoor related article that, yeah, that I, that I wrote. And then you also went to write a bit about historic expeditions. Did you find that to be an easy angle because there's a lot of information about there? You can rewrite these things a little bit or why? I, I, th I think you, you, you um, partly hit the nail on the head there. Um, if you're, you know, if you're doing good quality journalism that takes time it takes interviewing lots of sources you might have mm. to travel to locations to really get under the skin of the story uh, and that's really hard if you're not doing this full time so uh, another way although it's a different type of adventure writing taking a, a different look or uncovering lesser known historical expeditions is a nice way in a 
short space of time of writing about something you're passionate about. And I'd read, as I said, starting back 20 odd years ago, read a lot about mountaineering and, and mm. likely polar expeditions and other types of adventures from, you know, people cycling around the world for rowing oceans and, and so on. And I guess I'm slightly fascinated by those, those figures, those expeditions that have had a little less light shone on them than perhaps the, the bigger names, the star names that attract more of the attention. And in some cases, you know, there are lesser known people doing really hard things that it's nice to, yeah, shed a bit more light on their stories. I think that hasn't changed in throughout the years. Let's chat about this a bit later, obviously, because this is, I guess, exactly one of those items that not necessarily the expedition that gets the most light and the most coverage is actually the one that's the hardest or actually the, it's the biggest achievements. And then just in case someone listens who doesn't know some of the big websites or, or magazines that you then started to write for, like National Geographic, I think everyone knows that, Red Bull, everyone probably knows that as well. And also the Explorers web, which is, I would say a bit more niche. So I think you have to be a bit more in, in the area of exploration to, to know about that. But one of the great sources of keeping track on expeditions and what's going on. And you, you actually went out and then, as you said, you started these historic articles and then actually had to pitch to some of these magazines to say, Hey, I'm worth giving a shot and being, being posted on your website. How did that go? Like how easy or probably not that easy is it to get in touch with these more known magazines? Yeah, I think it's interesting to reflect on, on that, the, the journey that I've had. I haven't purposefully taken a particular route or a strategy. Mm. It just kind of happened organically. That first article, I just enjoyed writing and I didn't necessarily think I was going to follow it up in terms of developing full side hustle. Because at one point, a couple of years ago, I was spending all my evenings and, and one uh, day a week doing this. And I, I think I, I, I started with, you know, Googling how, how to write a pitch and understand how you construct <laughs> an email <laughs> yeah, to an editor, what that looks like. And I had some kind of experience of that publishing scientific journal articles, you write covering letters and you know how to make a really convincing argument. And the bar is pretty high in, in scientific publishing, it's quite brutal. So I wasn't worried about, you know, rejection or critique or, or not getting anywhere because I've had you know, tons of that every day of the week. And so I started pitching some ideas, um, initially, as I said, to some smaller UK websites and got some success. And then I think, I suppose that the big break for want of a better term was writing for Explorers Web, who you've mentioned, and we can follow up on that later. And that got me access to leading kind of cutting edge adventurers, people that were climbing new routes in the Himalaya mm. or trying to do hard polar expeditions, desert crossings, those kind of things. And after getting a bit more comfortable with, you know, developing questions, interviewing people, uh, developing more foundational knowledge outside of just, you know, uh, knowledge from historical books, literature, expedition books, and so on, but uh, developing knowledge from those that are actively uh, going out there and doing this and understanding a little bit more about the rules of adventure. That gave me a bit more confidence to then start targeting bigger names for interviews and then mm. the same for, for publications. And in some cases being, can be quite serendipitous, like a, my one and only article in Outside Magazine, which is a, a great place to publish in. That's a real kind of 
holy grail yeah. for an aspiring adventure writer was a short article um, on a climber who'd left some cryptocurrency on the top of Everest. I think it was always good testing one, like going back to 2018 now. And it was a bit of a, you know, the early stages of the buzz around cryptocurrency. And it yeah, was yeah, stumped just... by a Ukrainian climber leave X amount of cryptocurrency on Everest for another climber to find and cash in on. And it's just a very unique and, and bizarre story. And so mm. sometimes it's jumping on that kind of breaking news, be that actually cutting edge adventure or something quirky like that. So I've done some of those kind of pieces of writing, um, as well as trying to target people that I'm interested in, um, have read their books, look up to, want to uh, interview, try and take a different angle on perhaps previous interviews that have come before. And in those cases, I've, I've simply emailed them, tried to pester their secretary, phone them up in some mm. cases, just doing a cold call. And you'd be surprised at the, the amount of success you can have if you're persistent and of course, respectful. You kind of, if, if you don't ask, you don't get that maxim, yeah. I suppose I've tried to live that approach. Absolutely. I think this goes for every sector of life you're in, but especially when you want to work with other people and when you also, what you are doing is offering yourself as a medium to tell their story as well. Right. So especially in the beginning, when you reach out, it's a journalist and you start to have the outdoor magazine on your CV, then why wouldn't you, as, as an explorer, as an adventurer, be interested in having a chat? You know, okay, well, that can be great. They're going to ask some, some good questions. Of course, down the line, there might be some edgy questions that you ask, or it, it, it also maybe for some a risk and, and, uh, reading your articles is, I think it becomes clear. It is a little bit of, I don't want to say style, but it's definitely you are a person who asks few more questions than just applauding. It's like, hey, that's great. Next one. But actually asking okay, what's behind it and getting to the bottom of some of these questions, of some of these explorations. But my question would be really, how was it in the beginning? Because you start out, you're not that known. You don't have that much to show for at that point in time. And then obviously if you reach out and be a very cr criticizing, people are not going to like you that much. You know, maybe the readers will, they think, oh, that's a great guy finally, but the people you interview. So how much in the beginning did you think, okay, I just have to play it a bit nice just to pet the egos and be, I'll write great articles and they tell their friend and they introduce me to new explorers. And like, did you think about that or did it just come naturally that you were just like that in the beginning? That's a really a good question. My gut, uh, my first reaction would be, I didn't start out like that in intentionally taking that approach. It was really starting writing for Explorers Web and the ethos they took that instilled that in me. I'll come back to that in, in a moment, but I think there's probably yeah. two things. One, some of my earlier writing around mountaineering, for example, when I, I don't know, I, written a, for a couple of newspapers about groundbreaking climbs in the Himalaya or Andros Bargill skiing down K2. And that was really great to get those in, you know, well-known newspapers in the UK. But I was hell-bent on making sure that how those um, feats and adventures were described were authentic within the context of, of mountaineering history, because I knew that. I'd spent, a, you know, I'd, I've read the, um, the Metners, the Bonningtons, the Stephen Venables, you know, so I knew what constituted, um, alpinism 
cutting edge mountaineering, good style, difficulty, and so on. And I wanted to be able to describe those in a way that obviously appealed to the general public, but also was authentic to those that, mm. that know the game. And in 2018, there was a, a British guy, Tom Livingston, and a team of Slovenians, Alice Session, and I forget the other guy's name, my apologies, who put up a new route on Latok 1 in Himalaya, Pakistan, sorry, the Karakor in Pakistan. And, you know, people have been trying that particular route on Latok 1 for 35, 40 years, some of the best alpinists. And here comes this relatively inexperienced team, although very strong, do this amazing climb. I managed to speak to Tom as he gets back to his parents' house in, in the UK, get the article in the national newspaper, and you submit your words to the editor. And, you know, I was a little horrified when the story ran, you know, the next day that they'd used words like, you know, they, they'd conquered the mountain and they dropped in. Unfortunately, a Russian client had died on the mountain a couple of days before they summited, I think. Who was it from this? Anyway. And so, you know, the story ended up being tweaked towards, you know, Russian tragedy and so on. And it was quite kind of, you know, a little bit more emotive and speculation and so on. And that kind of wasn't the style I wanted to take. So that was an early, I'm digressing a little, that was a, an early lesson in that you, you might well to keep it authentic and credible, but, you know, certainly when it comes to wider mass media, that's hard. People have got newspapers yeah. to tell and editors will edit your words. So I guess one, I've always had a bit of that in me wanting to do credible work from a, the adventure community perspective to, I guess my day job, I'm a scientist and done research on reliability, reliability and validity mm. and accuracy of tools, you know, things like reproducibility and so on. And, and so there's an element of that, that I guess creeps into my writing, you're always, you know, evaluating data and contextualizing yeah. it against previous studies and data sets and so on, and highlighting strengths and weaknesses in a very objective way and a dispassionate way. And so in some sense, I brought that to my writing, but, you know, unfortunately, maybe for some cases it, it's writing about real people and expeditions and that may not always land well with everyone. And then the final point, going back to Explorers Web, so that, as you said, you know, rightly in the context of things, there's a niche website, but 20 years ago, a couple of Swedes, Tom and Tina Shogren set up the site. They were trying to independently climb Everest, uh, steep the North and South Poles, the full routes and row one of the oceans. And I think what they found when doing that was there were a lot of people they were coming across through a rich client being guided doing that. There were a hell of a lot of others that were doing it independently like them, but weren't mm. necessarily getting the coverage, the credit, the kudos, and um, that their efforts, you know, warranted. Mm. So they decided to launch this site, which over the last 20 years has, has got quite a good global following. I mean, 2006, when David Sharp died on Everest in quite sad circumstances, a couple of hundred thousand people would have been logging onto the site to find out what was happening and and particularly around certain seasons, whether it's the Everest season, whether it's the polar expedition season in Antarctica, we get quite a, quite a good readership because there aren't so many places that focus on in, in regularity, mm. you know, polar ocean, desert mountaineering news. Yeah. And the ethos of the site is really trying to contextualize 
adventures within the, the contemporary and um, past history of, of, of adventure mm. and make sure that those that are, you know, perhaps flying under the radar and doing difficult, credible things, get the due credit they deserve and trying to contextualize those perhaps higher profile expeditions. Yeah. Within the, within the wider context of the community in terms of difficulty, style, boldness, risk, mm. all of those constructs that are valued by some in the adventure. And I think you mentioned now in the last sentence, something important that it's valued by some Yeah, because pretty much everything that you now, now say is this fundamental balancing act between reaching the masses who are not into exploration, like just the, your, your average Joe. It's like, okay, the first person to climb this thing or, you know, roll that ocean and, and whatever you plug it in. And then you have the other side, which are these explorers, which are climbers, which are mountaineers, which are <laughs> rowers. And they like within a split second, they can know exactly, okay, this is actually worth writing about, or this is actually an achievement, or this is yet another, let's just call it record for the sake of it. And mm -hmm. now as a journalist, obviously that bucket of attention of the first person to this and historic achievement and conquering, mm -hmm. as you said, that's what sells because that, that, that you can print in, you know, in the sun, in the daily mail, in whatever the big newspapers, they want to report about that, the BBC and I just named no British newspapers, but <laughs> whatever. Other newspapers do exist. Other newspapers write about these things as well. But it's not necessary the, those, those adventures and feats that grab the attention of like this inner explorer core. And like, this must be a very tough balancing act to, you want to, ultimately you want to be respected by the guys who climb on these mountains and they say, Hey, Ash is a great journalist and he's doing great work. And at the same time, you want to get that reach. And how hard is it really to strike that balance then all the time and also not stepping onto mm -hmm. people's toes too much if you then, you know, don't write about it or actually give, give them a bit of a, mm, not sure if that was actually that great, what you guys did compared to X, Y, Z who did it in a much harder way, but didn't get any attention. Yeah. I think there's again, a really good question. There's, there's a lot in there. I think for me, it's about separating per, this is probably the most reductionist and simple way to look at mm. the style of writing that I and some others that I work with are interested in. It's about separating personal achievement against what you might consider as achievement within the context of the history of adventure. And that sounds quite grand, but let's take, for example, every year in Antarctica, a number of people ski the same few routes to the South Pole. And that's for most of us, and it would be for me and many others, a wonderful personal achievement. It takes a lot of time to raise the money, dedication to training, to pick up all of the different skills you need to achieve that, be that independently or guided. However, you could argue on the other side of things, wonderful personal achievement, but within the context of the history of polar exploration, that journey might well be a footnote. You might be the 40th person from your country uh, to do that. In the last 10 years, 50 people have done the same thing. And you've gone from perhaps being a beginner 24 months before that suddenly going to ski to the South Pole or, or similar 
and breaking some kind of record that has been qualified in, you know, with lots of additional qualifying terms to make it sound um, unique or original. And it's, it's a decision of what do we want to celebrate and highlight and remember and chronicle. And I guess I don't try and play off those two things and textualize things for anyone else, not for, you know, not get the kudos of my peers. It's purely, I guess I'm a bit of a, a romantic for want of a better term, those people, those protagonists that inspired me, those books that I read and the people I looked up to, particularly in the history of mountaineering, were often alpinists that approach mountaineering or expeditions in a certain style or way. They're purists. So going unguided, uh, tackling objectives that are bold, remote, difficult, where there's possibly little chance of rescue. Uh, that are truly original and unique. For example, the first person to climb New Road on a North Wall, first person to even make the ascent of that mountain, rather than um, trying to create an element for a world record or a first that isn't so unique or novel for, and just for the sake of it, possibly to yeah. fundraise and, and so on, and, and or to kickstart an, an adventure career. And there's nothing, you know, in and of itself wrong with that. It's just for me, you can't, can't compare the two. And um, there are some expeditions and adventures and feats that I think stand apart in their style and, and difficulty and, and boldness. And I think they, yeah, they should be de described as such. And when you write about these things and take the approach that I and some others do, of course, you're referencing, you know, expeditions and, and real people, um, and people that have skin in the game. Um, and if, you know, the, the responses from, from the individual adventurers or protagonists, of course, you know, they may not like it. They may be critical mm -hmm. of your articles and at first, um, that can be a little hard to take if you're not so used to that. It takes some, um, some adjustment uh, and it's, it's part and parcel of the game. I'm sure anyone, you know, take another discipline, you're a sports writer, maybe you're an art critic, perhaps you write about politics. It's going to be Marmite. People are going to, going to yeah. love or hate it and you're going to get all kinds of feedback and you have to get used to that. Um, and certainly, and not wanting to reference too much back to my day job, that I, you fail all the time in science. You get your articles rejected. You get your grants mm. rejected. You get quite critical feedback. So I've had, you know, a decade or more of that prior to starting writing. So you do get used to, you know, from my perspective, that side of things fairly fairly quickly. And of course, you know, if you've got other supportive colleagues that try and ask the difficult questions, then, you know, you get some kind of peer support on that side of things. I could, I have a few thoughts and I try to structure them in a, in a, in a logical way. The first thought that comes to my, or the question that comes to my mind is when you get critique, which just, and I've tried to explain it and please interrupt me if I explain it the wrong way, but you have a personal, someone has done a personal achievement. Let's, let's use Antarctica because I still think it's yeah. amazing. Like skiing, you know, whatever, unsupported, supported, solo, not so, it doesn't matter. Like you ski across yeah. Antarctica. Let's, let's just say it like that. It's a massive achievement and something you should be proud of as a, mm. as a person. And yeah. you should, you know, you will be an inspiration to, to many. That, yes. that, that is just a fact. You are very proud of that and you managed to raise some money and then you come along and maybe critique that in some way and say, well, it was great. And then you add a, a, but is 
the reaction of these people? Is it sometimes that they say, hey, you know, you haven't done that. Like, who are you to critique me in, in, in that? Uh, or like, does that happen to you? Yeah, indeed. So the, the article I sent you about some of the issues with Guinness World Records, absolutely, mm. there was a comment there where among a number of kind of points in um, response to the article, one was, well, you know, you haven't done this particular journey, all those kind of journeys. And in part, that's a fair point because lived experience is important of any, of anything. But if we were taking that logic, then we would hold no opinions on anything outside of our domain, immediate domain of experience. And as I referenced then earlier, there are people who write about politicians, about musicians, about artists, mm. about, you know, food, food critics, for example, most of those, or many of those have never practiced that particular discipline, mm. but they can still hold a, a valid opinion, a valid and informed opinion. They may not just have lived experience of that. Yeah. So I think that would probably be my response to that. The other side of things, I, I haven't skied to the South Pole, but I have some experience of doing Arctic and polar style travel or you know, long cycle touring journeys, for example, mm. and so on. And, and I interviewed guides, world-class athletes and adventurers, adventurers, met them in person, you know, and been out and done various things and, and with them. And so I, I get a good sense. It's not, it's that article in particular that I send you, it's, it's not just my own, I'm the, I'm on the byline. I'm on the face of the article as it, as it were though, my mm. words, but, um, in a number of them, the ideas have generated from, you know, intensive discussion with others in the adventure yeah. community. And particularly if it's talking to other adventurers, they've got skin in the game and they, um, understandably won't want to necessarily voice those opinions because it might piss off other adventurers, maybe relationships um, with future clients and sponsors and so on. So, um, and just, just to really quickly tap into that point, because what you are saying, it does resonate with also a lot of the talks that, that I have had, especially when you talk to the, let's say the purists, right. That, that really go out there for the expedition, for, for even the science. And what you're now saying is that sometimes for them, it's a bit challenging to raise these concerns out loud and really point fingers at that person has done that. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not worth X, Y, Z. And you obviously are a bit of a neutral person who, yeah. yeah and as a journalist, you should write about all these kind of, uh, kind of things. And do you actually have conversations with those people then on the other side as well, that they give you a call or write to you, Hey, Ash, that's actually a great article. And finally, someone is saying these things and. I wouldn't yeah. say it out loud, but I actually appreciate it. As an ex again, the, the, the article on the issues with, um, Guinness World Records. I will, I will link that article in the, in yeah, the show notes now that you've referred it to the third time. It makes sense yeah. for everyone to, to just, click on that one. Just because that's the one that, you know, there, there are others. Um, yeah, yeah. but yeah, no, indeed I had a number of messages within a few hours from some people who are, you know, world-class in their disciplines mm. saying, great, you know, I'm really pleased that somebody's writing about this. Other similar ones in the, on, on sort of Poland and Antarctic travel from big figures. Absolutely. Mm. I've said, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're discussing these issues and, and I would discuss them with any, you know, anyone I would write about. There's no intentional negativity or criticism or ill will. Um, it's, a, it's an, it's an opinion, um, and, uh, and that's it. 
and there are some that disagree and some that um, uh, agree and I'd be happy to, you know, chat with mm. um, anyone about it, as I said. Um, and uh, I think one of the good examples where an expedition has kind of openly been criticised, for want of a better term, among the adventure community and going back to Antarctica is a guy called Colin O'Brady, who you may have heard of and some of your listeners who... Yeah. Really fit guy, former triathlete, had done some kind of ultra endurance hiking records prior to in 2018, the winter of 2018, going down to Antarctica, um, tackling what he described. And I might be getting the word, you know, mixed up slightly as like the, the last impossible first or, you know, words to that effect. And the mm. idea was that he would be crossing from one edge of Antarctica to the other on skis, unassisted, so no one else was going to drop anything by air or leave supplies for him, um, and, and unsupported, uh, and so purely human power on skis, no kites, snow kiting kite to um, help propel him along. And that was billed as the, the first solo unassisted and unsupported crossing of, of Antarctica. And Colin, really fit, strong guy, obviously good at his admin and so on out in the ice. And he pulled it off at the same time as a, another excellent guy, Lou Rudd, a British former special forces soldier. And so yeah, finished the, finished the crossing and it was billed as, as I said, this grand thing, the impossible first, and it was almost like no one else in history could have ever achieved it. The way that the Hubie and around the. Mm. Um, expedition, the marketing and the PR and so on. Wind back to 1996 um, and a Norwegian guy known to to many in the very world, Borger Usland, who, you know, some might argue is the, the greatest living modern polar mm. traveller. Borger had crossed Antarctica from not the inner edges like Colin. So Antarctica is rock mass with these permanent ice shells, well, at least for the last 10,000 years or so. So Borg had gone right to the very edge of, of the ice and cross down to the South Pole uh, and down to the bottom of Antarctica, right to the edge of the ice. So a much, much longer route by a, by a long, long way. But the difference is in a few, on a few occasions, he used a rudimentary kite to help grass in. Now, modern kite skiers can travel hundreds of kilometers a day. This 25, 30 years ago was far more rudimentary and was, as I understand it, used on only a few occasions. And so here you have two people, one who in 1996 had, who had actually crossed the, the full Antarctic continent, because some would argue you can't just cross the inner coastlines and miss out the other couple of hundred or however many hundreds of kilometers either side. Mm. And other teams have done variations of, of crossings. And so in, in light of this writer called Aaron Teasdale in the US wrote a, a National Geographic kind of expose, basically highlighting the kind of misleadingness of, of the way Collins expeditions was marketing, you know, it was clearly a well-executed expedition. It certainly wasn't the impossible first or however it was described. And yeah. around the same time, a group of, I think it was 40 odd of the real kind of luminaries of polar travel wrote a letter in support of that and also suggesting, you know, Borgrush really, he was the guy that did this first. And that's one example of, I guess, the, the 
type of stuff that me, others, explorers were try to, try to try and write about and mm. contextualize a modern expedition within the wider history of that discipline. And that's important because you're giving due credit to those that came before you. And some people off the back of these expeditions can, they can earn big money on the speaking circuit with books, maybe mm. guiding and so on. And then you might ask, is it, is that entirely fair? Yeah. And to what extent are they misrepresenting, you know, the way that's been described for their own gain and so on. So, and I think we're now entering, uh, in my opinion, the really interesting topic of the why, because maybe yeah. up until this point, people might ask and. I had the same dialogue. So yesterday I was with friends and my, uh, and my partner and I told them, I'll, I'll speak to you tomorrow. I'm very excited because we have this opinion on these records. And then one of the first questions was like, why would he, you know, why would he write negative, write negative about people who do amazing things? It's great. So, and then actually they also brought the examples. Like, I don't get why an art critic has to criticize art or why a food critic has to criticize food. Like, can I just leave people be? And now you might think. Yes, you can just leave people be and, but, but the, the big issue, and that's also where, what I see and why I think art critics and food critics have a right to be in this world. And when you look at adventures, everyone competes kind of for the same pot of money. So these things are super like polar travel, hundred thousand yeah. dollars plus, um, Everest, we all know that it's super expensive and, and all kinds of other expeditions and there are people out there who also have scientific purposes, who have like communal purposes, who want to, you know, maybe have a story to tell, to connect cultures, who, whatever you name it, or truly make a, make an impact, make a dent in the chronicles of exploration. And they compete to, for the same money as people who are really good on Instagram. And, and I think this is a bit where the justification also lies to say, we, we need to understand like what is really a true world's first and a world record, because as soon as you throw these big firsts and, you know, unprecedented and whatnot at it, you get media attention. And in the end that fuels and that funds expeditions. I mean, you and research, like funding is everything, you know, funding is absolutely yeah. everything. And. In, 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 in the end, that's, that's really to some extent, the essence of it, or, or that these expeditions are so expensive. And if the wrong people get the credit, then you incentivize people to come up with these words first, instead of, you know, actually going after maybe scientific expeditions that are maybe way more beneficial for everyone. Yeah. I, th th there's a lot in there. And I think just generally a point someone commented on. I think one of the articles recently was, which really summarizes, I guess, perhaps what I'm going to say is some of these issues are simply a microcosm for a wider change in society where we value quick wins, a quick dopamine hit, whether that's a like on social media, whether that's a fast track to fame in some way without necessarily real underlying talent, skill that's been developed over years and years or, or decades in some cases. And adventure is no different. It by some is being used as a, as a tool to perhaps kickstart a career, fuel ego and so on. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that because all of us 
would, if we were really honest, say a small part of going on adventure is to fuel ego in, in some way, if we were really, you know, yeah. reflecting on, on oneself's inner, inner motivations. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's no different to other, other spheres of society, really. I mean, if we think about so high altitude mountaineering and how that's become what you might term very Instagramified, where people are being heavily, heavily guided and heavily supported, both with helicopters, oxygen and Sherpas by mountains that they otherwise wouldn't have the, the skill or expertise to do alone. And also at the same time, claiming records that have um, lots of qualifiers and by qualifiers, I mean, things like the, the youngest, the oldest from X country of certain ethnicity and so on, or to do some X number of mountain in X time, so many times back to back, whatever it is to create a sense of uniqueness and originality to a, like you say, raise money, B to garner attention and so on. Um, and that's, again, it's, you know, we're not saying these things are inherently bad. It's just, no, no. It, 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 it doesn't quite play into some of the reasons why, why many people go on the, and, and seek adventure and wilderness experiences, mm. whether that's connection and spirituality with, with nature, whether that's love of the land and landscape, um, whether that's being away from civilization for, for, for a while, it doesn't quite to me sit right with some of those fundamental, mm. um, guiding principles. And in terms of the other point you raised about, oh, why don't we just kind of, you know, leave, leave this, leave this alone and, and not write anything that is a different, uh, opinion or approach or context to these adventures. Well, I think for, for the outside world, or even for some within the adventure community across disciplines, it's hard to get a sense of what is difficult or not. So to many skiing, I don't know, to the South pole, for example might seem insurmountably achievable and impossible. Mm. But what they don't know is that every year there are people that have raised the money and two, two to five years before they'd never even considered skiing to the South Pole. They may never have been on skis before, like I hadn't prior to that. They may not have even been that outdoorsy and very suddenly with the right training, guiding and so on, they can get there even independently and potentially set some kind of record. And that makes you reflect, well, how difficult is it? In how mm. many other sectors and parts of life is that possible? So going again, go back to my example of science, well, it takes at least 10 years to even get at the table, a couple of degrees, yeah. PhD, a couple of papers, and then you might get a look in in terms of doing something that's really novel and original. Well, let's take a 400 meter runner. How many people are going to, oh, think, oh, I'm suddenly going to take up 400 meters and then, yeah, yeah, a couple of years later, they're European champion. That's maybe a silly example, but it's unlikely. And so I think it's important to just, at one, there'll be plenty of people, the people themselves, the friends and family and other media will celebrate rightly those achievements. I need to make that clear that you can't detract that, but it's about contextualizing against other expeditions and again, back to the history of adventure. Mm. And, and many people don't realize that, that there are some disciplines of adventure that don't, you know, that are achievable for um, the everyday person. And that might be, for example, some of the, some of the polar trips, not all, mm. that might be some ocean roads, for example, 
but it's a very different kettle of fish if you're climbing a really technical water ice on a, a north wall in the Himalaya. That takes a long, you know, mm. apprenticeship. And historically, you know, if you talk to, you don't have to go back many generations. You can talk to climbers in the fifties that are still doing hard stuff. And they'll say, well, you know, we didn't just go from hiking a small mountain in the UK to doing Kilimanjaro to doing Everest within a year or two. We started and then we stuck, we went to the Alps and we did five or six Alpine seasons. And then we did winter Alpine seasons. Then we went to the Andes and then we went to the Himalayas and we, we were on the five, six, seven thousand meter peaks. Then finally we went to the 8,000 meter peaks mm. and that's the, you know, that's the, the, the ethos that, yeah, I suppose I, I work from. And it, there are people that do speak out or give their opinions. Paul Ramsden, who just won his fifth Pierre d'Or, the, the Golden Axe, the Oscars of mountaineering, and that's awarded to teams that do really difficult, bold alpine climbs. Every year he received that in a couple of weeks and said, you know, why are we giving attention focus to these guided climbers that are on fixed roads, loads of oxygen, loads of Sherpas, that, that ain't climbing. And that might seem harsh, but to, to an alpinist or an elite mountaineer, it's not. It's following mm. hundreds of people at the mountain on fixed ropes and tracks that well stepped out in the snow with Sherpas that are your lifeline and a wonderful personal achievement, but it's in, it's in no way comparable to yeah, someone like Paul Ramsden or go back 35, 40 years with Reinhold Messner, Jersey, Kushner, yeah. Dean Venables, those, those guys. And the real shame is that. Some of the sort of, uh, the modern, well, the, the records that some of those guys set, not that they were that necessarily interested in, in those records are being broken by people using a very different style and that's not communicated mm. often in the mass media. And so does it really matter? No, adventure is utterly pointless. There is no point to it. And, but for those of us that love it, live and breathe it, then yeah, it's important to make people aware of that, even if just for our own people of mind, I suppose. Do you think there's an element of over-romanticizing it that we look at it and say, for your back then, whatever, and I'll throw some random names out. You know, Franklin at the Northwest Passage, Shackleton tried to go to an actor and maybe not even going that much back, but when we look at Everest and they did it on like hemp rope, they didn't have like, it doesn't matter, right? But romanticizing it a little bit and and with that, adding another point uh, and question thereof, uh, which is, I had a conversation with a polar explorer who said, getting to the starting line is 50% of the expedition. And is there also a certain level of credit that has to be given to someone who actually makes it to the starting line? Sort of by, and this is a bit the world we live in, right? By being able to market yourself, which is so difficult. It is, it is a huge challenge in its own to market yourself, to raise money, to, to go around, you know, tour the countries, find sponsors and actually get the hundred thousands of currency you need to get to the starting line. Is that, is an awesome element and just applauding that and saying, okay, well, yeah, the expedition you did in itself, it's maybe not worth for the books, but wow, you, you know, you actually managed to get so much attention behind you. That is, is that in your reality, maybe of, of expeditions that we just have these two incredible components and you need to excel in both of them. Yeah. The two really, 
two really good points there. And I think you're definitely right. There's an element of over romanticism, whether that's some of the figures I mentioned there, for example, Messner, Kukushka, some of those guys, you might argue were chasing records, trying to complete the 14, 8,000 meters mm. in the, in the mid 1980s or the group that were trying to chase the seven summits, whichever um, variation again in the early to mid 1980s. Yes, absolutely. Um, go back further, um, whether it's Shackleton, Scott, Hillary, those guys, of course, if there was a modern equipment available today, they would have been using those innovations and their motivations were Shackleton, great salesman, the same for Scott, what they were driven by, lots of historians will argue, whether it's, you know, part ego, part nationalism, part love of adventure, trying to escape from society and what's at home and so on. So. Yeah, absolutely. There are many parallels with historical figures. And I think it's valid to say there is an element of romanticism there. It's just that I think some of the, the tactics, let's just say in the Himalayan mountaineering are quite odds to the original practice, some of the original practices of, mm. of alpinism, not necessarily mountaineering, because of course, go back to the mid to late 1800s. Many of the people that were climbing the important Alpine peaks were guided by local guides. So nothing has changed in, in that <laughs> respect. Or you could go back to 30s, 40s and 50s Arctic expeditions guided by local Inuit in, in, mm. in the north of Canada. So in that respect, it's not unique. I think it's the, the scale of the commercialism that, mm. that worries some people and the fact that yep. you can, in some cases, by your way, you still have to, you know, be really physically fit and strong and mentally determined that you can buy your way to, to some of these adventures. I'm going to take so a very, very controversial opinion now. That isn't necessarily my opinion, but just, yeah, uh, yeah. No, just to stand because I, I love that conversation with you and you were absolutely the right guy to ping pong this back and forth. Those, those people who criticize the more commercialization and say you out there, you have these, just because you have these followers and you get these brand deals. Yeah. Is it because they know they are not good at this and they know they're going to fall behind by just showing what they can do and they, they, it's really a new skill. And I mean, we both know that it's so difficult to be out to get attention that it's just very, very, you know, unattractive to them to enter this world of, oh, now I have to go around with my little pet and collect money that they simply don't want to put crazy photos out of them and, and be this attention seeking. They just want the, the adventure to speak for itself, but we may be a bit past that time where that's enough. Yeah. That's a really complex question. It depends on your motivations for, for doing adventure and whether you need to, to fund big, big, big money expeditions. Mm. Cause I would imagine that, yeah, that's a, a big part of having very, very active PR and social media. I mean, mm. I'm on social media, I've had low level sponsorship for things. And yes, there is, has to be a certain element of hubris involved. That's, that's, that's understandable, but it's all about keeping it within the realms of what's credible and authentic yeah. really. And very quickly behind the scenes, if you talk to other adventurers or adventure writers, they know what, you know, what's the, the kind of good stuff for want of a better term and, and, and what's Absolutely. not. Yeah. Also, it, yeah. Sorry, go on. 
No, I just wanted to actually refer for the fourth time um, to your article <laughs> because <laughs> there, there you also mentioned that there is a, so your article talks a lot about the Guinness Book of World Records and everyone can have opinions what's in there and what's not in there. But you also said that especially when it comes to the Arctic or the polar um, exploration that what you've now explained a few minutes ago with you know, what happened with Colin Brady and so on, that there's now a new sort of ranking system and there are different ranking systems that that I actually consider to be credible over some, you know, commercialized world record. So is, is that then just a, where you say that, okay, that's a necessity that has to happen in order to kind of level these records back to where they were? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of the people are going out there doing the adventures for the sake of it um, and a record and where it sits within the records is an additional thing because, you know, it's part of a, a sporting discipline that you'll set records and that's a nice fun part of it. So mm. absolutely not against records. It's, you know, it's really interesting, but it was about the comparability of records, comparing mm. apples with oranges. If there are no clear margins for how you operate and how you compare, then it makes it very difficult, not just for the press, but for people thinking about, well, if I'm going to set this speed record, where did that person start and when did they end? And mm. what was the mode of travel in between? Were they on snowshoes? Were they on skis? Did they use a kite? And so on. So the example that, I, that you refer to is the Polar Expedition Classification System, PEX, um, which, you know, credible polar guide, Australian Eric Phillips, who's done a lot of very notable polar journeys. He really led that along with other well-known polar and Antarctic guides and so on. And that's a way of of codifying and classifying expeditions. So if you're planning an expedition, there are four or five different parameters you need to think about in the way you describe it, whether it's got supports, the kind of geographical path or crossing or route that you're taking, there are certain descriptors. So you can really clearly mm. describe it in a sentence. And so the next person that comes on next year, if they're doing a similar thing, they can describe what they're doing really accurately. But sometimes the problem with that is, where does it stop? You can add lots of different classifiers and categories to the extent that something is very similar to another journey, but it's marginally different. And then hence you yeah. can say it is a world's best. Yeah. All the articles that you currently look into where you say, okay, like moving a little bit away from the records mm. or comparing them, but. What do you think are now right now very interesting articles of the explorers that that do things where you say that that really grabs your attention and that's where you want to personally invest in learning more? Um, what are some of those examples? I, I think to some extent it depends on the discipline. For me, if it's mountaineering, then the things that kind of you know light the fire inside of me in terms of being excited about writing or interviewing people are those that are going to. Um, make first ascents or mountains in remote areas of the greater ranges in difficult style in small independent teams. I think that's always inspiring and that's, that's certainly not new, mm. but later in the year explorers where we'll be publishing our round of the top 10 expedition of 2023 and a number of those are really worthy climbs that small groups of, you know, two or three climbers climbing big peaks in the greater ranges that very few humans may have even set eyes on 
Mm. And, you know, they certainly have never set eyes on the other side of the wall and the descent route and, and so on. I suppose the element of uncertainty and mm. exploration, because that's hard to find in adventure and people often say they're explorers when there's very little exploration. So I think that still that little bit of charting the unknown inspires me, certainly in terms mm. of, of mountaineering um, and the same in kind of Arctic travel um, and often links to history um, and historical attempts are interesting for me. So uh, American guy, West Hansen has just led the first kayak of the, of the Northwest passage completed in the last couple of months. So no one's done that in a full yeah. season in one continuous push. And of course the Northwest passage is really fabled route for it was many... on this podcast I talked to him oh. last year and don't want to spoil too much, but we might have a podcast about exactly that expedition coming up soon. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And, and West actually is some, I talked to that hold quite, you know, similar opinions and strong opinions on say Guinness and, yeah, yeah. and water base records. So it'd be good to chat to for that. Yeah. But that, you know, that's not just because someone hadn't done it before, even if a group had done it 10 years before, it's just really, really difficult and, um, mm. unlikely mm. to to, to, to have come off and I guess against the odds, I don't really like that term. Those, those guys pulled it off, um, yeah. really hard traveling through that to the ice, um, across a number of changing seasons for a long way in difficult condition and, and having, you know, done Amazonian paddling and other types of paddling wouldn't necessarily have described themselves as Arctic paddlers before. No, no. Yeah, that's, that's quite impressive. So. Yeah, that's an example of a kind of expedition map that inspires me. Yeah. Also, what I what I find inspiring as well is the yeah maybe, maybe really a bit the part that's getting to the starting line. I I find that as a very interesting element because it involves so much personal story and so much personal background. And yes, it, it often is not worthy, you know, writing a national article or national news about this. But I think it's yeah. these very inspiring personal stories of. A lot of people who struggled, who thought they couldn't do it. People tell them they're not good enough. And then, yeah. and, and, and that element, I, I find that deserves absolutely some credit. People jumping over personal hurdles. I totally agree that in the end, we should treat the expedition as what it is in, in the broader context. And at the same time, I think it is also so interesting to hear how people actually got to the starting line, how they actually made it to that point. So. That is an element I'm personally always very, very interested in talking about and hearing people. That's, you know, if you listen to this podcast more often, you will very quickly realize there's a surprisingly little amount being talked about the trip itself, but yeah. so much being talked about who are these people who actually managed to who set their mind on now I'm going to do this. And it's, you know, maybe in a story context, not massive, but as you've also said in the very beginning, a huge personal achievement. Yeah. So, and, and actually that, so that picks up on the point you, you made earlier. We didn't get collected with that question. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely something to be celebrated about getting to the start point at a, at an, in, at an individual level. Like you say, you, you have to be really dogged to get up early, to train around your day yeah. job in many cases, to fundraise, yeah. to go and, you know, stand up and look silly in front of executives at a meeting in London somewhere to to, to, to raise money and that's, you know, that's absolutely, you know, hats off to those people that, that can make that happen. I find that less interesting. So it's a bit like, you know, that 
start of X Factor, if you've ever watched that, and everyone has their own personal journey. Some people will cry at those journeys. Other people yeah. won't. I'm probably in the other people won't category. Yeah. I don't find them so interesting. I, again, hats off, but it, that's not what I'm so interested in. I, I guess more the wider life story mm. I, I find interesting and how that weaves into um, certain journeys. And one of the most interesting people I've interviewed and, and met is Rosie Swale Pope, who is a mid-70s lady from the UK who recently was attempting to run from Brighton, the south of England, to, to Nepal, I think it was, pulling her cart called Ice Chick, which is a, a couple of metre long cart that she has all her supplies in and she beds down and lives in at night. So that would be a huge task for most 25-year-olds, let alone mm. uh, 75-year-olds. And Rosie's had a really interesting life from, with her first husband, sailing one of the major oceans, riding a couple of thousand kilometers on horseback in something like Chile, I think it was, and settling down into family life, losing her husband from, through cancer, and then in her 50s, finding the love of adventure again, and running around the world, running across Alaska again, pulling these carts. And doing lots of other amazing adventures. And she's a very colourful character. And that brings her adventures to life. And there's one story that always stuck with me when I spoke to her a few years ago. She was running through a forest in something like Bavaria. Alone with her, with her car. No one around. And she came across a man on the trail. Looked like he was in some kind of distress. As she got closer, it looked like he was seriously ill. Her phone, unfortunately, had no signal or battery. I don't know how close she was away from the local community, but quite a long way away in the middle of nowhere with this guy. And the long, the short of it is she held him in her arms as he died. Quite a profound thing to happen to most people, um, I would imagine. And that's an example of, a, of, a, of an experience on a, I mean, you know, quite an interesting adventure. And the way she describes it tells these stories and many experiences not necessarily like that but she's had really bring her ad adventures to to life so i think mm. it's it's dependent on the personality some people i guess you know are less interesting than than others to write about and so the, the colorful more storied characters mm. I, I find interesting there are lots of people out there with difficult tough journeys and stories and after a while, when you start receiving lots of emails from PR um, and from people themselves, it's hard to discern them. They all sound the same to some extent without being too cynical, but, you know, some kind of adversity, overcoming the adversity, a, a life-changing moment, let's think about mm. going on adventure, battle hard to raise the money, go and do it, uh, write a book, go on a motivational speaking tour. And that's, as I, that's great for the people but for me you, when you start when you hear that multiple times it becomes less less interesting and you'd be mm. surprised you know it probably sounds cynical and negative but the regularity of that and those kind of narratives and stories and that's where you know i think adventure literature and where that's moving starting off a little bit more about you know man ticky white man conquers mountain somewhere girl i gritted through my teeth and i managed to get mm. up there aren't I wonderful? That's really changing. And not just thinking about opening up to female writers or people of, you know, female ethnicities. And we think about intersection of 
different characteristics in society, but different types of stories and, and, and narratives and so on. Think adventure writings, meshing history, culture, and all those yeah. kind of things a little bit more. So that's, that's for the better as well, I think. Awesome. Ash, thank you so much. I think it's, it is very interesting and needed that, you know, people like you go out and really write about all these expeditions and you also drill into the details because that's exactly the thing that if you're not into that, let's call it world, it's very hard to understand what has actually been done and why something is now unique or not, why something is worth talking about, talking about not. And so in, in that sense, it's, and now making the loop back to, you know, Explorers Rap and all the others, uh, outdoor magazines. It's so good that there's so much coverage nowadays about these things. And I think that is a big benefit of having media, social media out there and people talking about that. Yes, there's maybe a bit of noise out there as well, right? Like, but at the same time, you also have the chance to engage in so many adventures and just the amount of people I, I, I feel who go out and do things, it has increased. There's just, you know an Arctic travel, we, we, every year there's a new record on Everest and, and, and these mountains, but ultimately that I think to some extent also a really good thing because more people do these things, more people go out, it becomes more mainstream and by being more mainstream means there's more money in it. And with more money being in it, there can be even greater expeditions can be done and even more attention can be put on the fragile environments, maybe the North Pole who's extremely in so much danger. Like we can do a whole new episode about this one, but like how fragile this environment is. And in that sense, it's just really great that people like you go out and really take, as you said, it's a side hustle. It's part of where you have a, you know, you have a day job as well and take the time and put all the effort and, and dedication to it, to talk about these adventures and yeah, inspire people, motivate people a little bit to, to also maybe do the same things one day. Yeah. I think uh, adventure is a great thing. I know I said earlier, it's pretty pointless, but it is it, you know, any of us who've even simply been on a hike up a mountain and seen a sunrise, um, gone swimming in the sea, whatever, whatever your bag is, kayaking down a river in the city, whatever it is, it, it's good for the soul. It's good for our mind and mm. it's good physically. The more people that we can encourage out into within reason power green spaces and wide places, it will be good for society, uh, travel, the, you know, the kind of cliches that we learn a lot about the world from traveling and experiencing new cultures. And we're at a yeah. time of extreme polarization and popularization in politics and putting people into uh, groups and categories. Yeah, yeah. Really, we could do with more expansive thinking and adventure helps in, in some little way in that respect. I guess the other side is balancing it against some of the those global concerns that we're facing, climate change being one. And I suppose I, I struggle sometimes if I see expeditions billed as being directly related in, in some way to climate change. Some do very good science. Mm. Others do frankly like hobby science and it's not worthwhile doing. You know, might as well give your 25,000 to a scientist at university that can, you know, perhaps could travel up an icebreaker and take some ice cores, whatever they're doing, mm. you don't need to students up both to do it you could raise yeah. awareness in, in in other ways and that's where i'm slightly cynical i'm not saying there aren't because there are some expeditions that definitely do good you know related to, to climate yeah. courses but um sometimes attaching expedition to courses isn't needed 
is it simply enough just to say, I'm going there because I want to do it. It's going to mm. be fun. I'm going to have a laugh with my weight. I want to be on that wall. I want to be on that ice cap, whatever it is. Yeah. And you don't need a, a reason. That's okay if you have the money, of course. <laughs> Um, oh, it's the wrong money. And that's... so, yeah, and that's where it comes back to the, the motivations um, yeah. for, for adventure. And of course there are, you know, no right or wrong ones. People have different opinions on that. Why? I have two more questions. Uh, and those are questions that I always ask. So maybe you are prepared, maybe not. The first one is, of course, he, you know, talking about the why's, uh, the why a little bit and about um, yeah, personally you in terms of inspiration. So there's a lot of people to, to have an inspiration. No, how do you say that? There's a lot of people who can inspire you that way. And I'm very curious, like who is your big inspiration? If you, do you have a, a person that just serves throughout your maybe life or your career or maybe different aspects of your life as, as an inspiration? It'd be hard to say currently. I'd say historically, I'd go back to those post-war British climbers. I'm not a climber. I've rock climbed a little bit. I love hiking in the mountains. People like Chris Bonington, Doug Scott, Joe Brown, Don Willens, Hamish McKinney, Alex McIntyre. You can tell all these just roll off of the tongue. Mm. Their stories, their climbs, their approaches were really important to me, I think as a, as a teenager and in my early twenties, mm. they inspired me to want to, to do expeditions necessarily, you know, climb the same mountains or be a mountaineer, you know, forge my own path in small independent, um, travel. So I'd, I'd go for, for those guys. I think they have had a big, big, a big place at the, the table in terms of British adventure literature and, and, and more around the world. And thinking about currently, well, many of the people that I, that I interview certainly, you know, respect, I wouldn't say hero worship or anything like, like that mm. any, anymore, partly because when you get to meet these people, you realize like you and I, they're just normal people. They may have done remarkable things, um, but there's, you know, on a human level, there's not much that sets us apart. They, they may have dedicated their life to this and have particular skill and ability. Mm. So, yeah, I think that, and that's been interesting in interviewing people that may have formerly been your heroes or you admired or looked up to, and you realize that, yeah, they're just as flawed as the rest of us. And some of them are really boring and not very interesting and unidimensional because all they can do is climb really well, for example. Yeah. And um, an example, yeah. not in that way, Reinhold Messner, who really lucky to interview, managed to get a phone call with him. Great interview. He was really nice and, and personable, but. I came away from thinking, well, you know, he did all these incredible things, but he's just a, a guy on the end of the telephone who happened to speak to and was personable and likable just as any other man in the street. So I try and keep it in, in, mm. in context, but, um, those not to ramble on too much. I always have this, if I ever speak to anyone, book by David Robert, a very well-known uh, alone American. on the ice alone on the ice and so this was a historic tale that inspired me i won't go into the in and out of it but so douglas mawson geologist mm. in antarctica around the time of scott and shackleton he's less revered and, and written about in the, you know in the, the wide world and robert's 
written this book about a really harrowing survival story in 1911 that the Mawson was part of. His two mates died, one pulling crevasse, one um, died through poisoning mm. from eating the liver of puppies they had to kill. And Mawson was left yeah. alone to see the remainder of his time back to 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 a hut and his his mate in Antarctica, and that sounds awful. But something in the in the writing in, inspired me, and I actually wrote to, to David Roberts to tell him that a couple of years after reading it, because he was battling cancer at the time, and he used to write mm. his really kind of witty and wise, funny little Facebook post about his battle with cancer and his reflection on his you know writing and climbing, and he kind of reflected one day, well. What use do my words have to anyone? You know, he might have been revered as this great writer. And I wrote to him and said, well, your words had an impact on me and they changed my life. So even though that's just one person. And unfortunately, David died, you know, a year or so after. Mm. Yeah, they're in adventures pointless, but it can inspire people. And for you, that's just one example. Yeah, I think that's a very, very beautiful sentence to finish, to finish that off. Thanks a lot. And then, yeah, oh, the, the last question less philosophical mm. but uh more on a practical nature maybe that is if you were to go out on you know you're also a bit more on the on the polar arctic expedition side and you can only bring one thing or if there's one thing that is particularly valuable and special to you what would that be oh it would probably be um a little teddy i've got a a, a small baby duck called clyde that my partner Nicole bought for me. So in 2020, myself and, and Jerry Kobolenko, the Explorers web editor, were all set to ski some hundred kilometers up the frozen coastline of Baffin Island. And two days before flying out, COVID hit. And so Nicole had bought me this little teddy named after Clyde River, where we're we going to start. Um, so I'd say something like that, a little keepsake, a mascot mm. to remind you of, of, of home. And that's always been a, an article in the back of my head because I know a lot of adventurers have keepsakes or, or those kind of things. So I think that question's a, a good one and would form the basis of a kind of cute little article, I think. That was Ash. And I truly enjoyed this conversation to really bounce a bit back and forth the idea of what are record-breaking expeditions in the sense of holding a world record and where do you truly push the boundaries and where you truly achieve something new? I hope that this conversation inspired some to have a discussion. There's no right and wrong. There's place for everyone to go out in this world and to go on expeditions. At the same time, I think it's a very important discussion to have if we are truly trying to explore new areas and connect cultures or if we are just hunting records. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to know more about the World Explorers Collective, what we do, or read about our guests, then visit worldexplorerscollective.com. There you can also learn about our fund that we give out to fund meaningful expeditions. You can apply and maybe then you will get funding for your expedition. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and I hope I'll see you next time.